Hello, I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, November 19th, 2015, and this is episode four of Garbage. On this week's episode, JCS has a uh, Kickstarter item that he got, and he's going to review some uh, Bluetooth headphones. We were asked to uh, talk about some PGP, GPG alternatives, and then uh, JCS is going to cover a new driver that he's working on in OpenBSD. And then we're going to talk about some high-resolution re- displays in, um, in OpenBSD, and I guess specifically using something like a 4K monitor or something like that. So I have a, uh, a set of tiny Bluetooth headphones. They are called the Earin, E-A-R-I-N. I backed them on Kickstarter in July of 2014. They finally shipped to me uh, earlier this week. When I initially saw them, I liked them because they're, they're very small. They're not connected to each other like most uh, Bluetooth headsets. Mm-hmm. So they're just like a tiny little independent earbud, and you just uh, put each of them in, or you can just wear one at uh, just one if you want. Okay. And then they the left one pairs to your phone, and then the audio for both channels gets sent to that left ear, uh, earbud, and then that synchronizes to the right one. So that does that sends Bluetooth uh, data over to the right one. Okay. So they come in like this little uh, like aluminum case. It's about the size of maybe a, I don't know, a lipstick container for those of you that wear lipstick. And then you just slide the top out and then you can pull each earbud out. And then as soon as you pull them out of the, the little case, they turn on. And then uh, when you're done with them, because there's no like buttons or anything on them, you just put them back in the case. And then as soon as you uh, put them in there, they start to charge and they shut off. So the little container itself has a battery that you charge, and then that charges the earbuds. So the uh, earbuds get like three and a half hours of battery life, and then you can just stick them back in this case and then charge them. And I think you can charge them like three times before you need to charge the case itself through a micro USB cable. So uh, that's kind of how they were pitched on Kickstarter. Uh, really nice in theory. The hardware is actually really nice. It's, you know, aluminum case. The earbuds are um, like a metal. They come with, I don't know if you're familiar with them, the Compli foam tips. The only problem is that the software or the, the firmware, I guess, on them is pretty bad. Yeah. So it's it's definitely like a version one product. So I would say um, wait until version two is out if you uh, are interested in these. Now, are these are these supposed to be like um, high quality audio? I mean, is there anything special about like are there three drivers in there or something crazy like that? There's not three drivers, but they are definitely a higher quality than like the uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Moto Hint. Mm-hmm. It was that um, it was like a Bluetooth headset basically, and it's uh, really small. It came out. It looked kind of neat. It was pretty small, and I, I was gonna get one, but the audio quality on it is terrible because it uses like a normal speaker that most of the Bluetooth headsets use because it's only used for like talking on a phone. Right. But these have actually uh, pretty decent quality um, drivers in them. So you can listen to, you know, regular music on it. Um, I kind of just wanted them to listen to podcasts Mm -hmm. because uh, when I'm out like walking and stuff, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I usually use uh, like wired earbuds and I don't know, they just kind of annoyed me. Yep. So I wanted these, so I got them, and so they were on uh, Kickstarter. It ended in like July of 2014. I just got them earlier this week, and they are already in Best Buy stores. Oh wow! Yeah, so they were actually selling them in Best Buy before some people that backed them 
actually got theirs, <laughs> which is kind of a dick move. Yeah. You know, you figure you backed this company and got them up and running and they were able to make their product because of all the backers. And then they just kind of said, oh, let's just sell these in Best Buy before the backers even get theirs. Yeah. And then, so what kind of price point are these? Uh, I don't even remember. Uh, let me look on Best Buy right now because that's where you can get them. Now, uh, Bluetooth in general, I mean, Bluetooth doesn't tend to work well. I mean, I've used heart rate monitors and some other stuff. And yeah. just in general, it doesn't seem to go through the body at all. And um, and I know that they're working on, like, Bluetooth low energy and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But my heart rate monitor, if my phone is, you know, in my back pocket and my heart rate monitor is in front of me, I I have issues, you know, getting that signal around. And people are like, oh, it's a cheap device or whatever. But if I put my phone in front of me, it works mm -hmm. flawlessly. So I, I kind of wonder about having an earbud inside your ear trying to transmit to, you know, the other ear if they might be just against physics here. Yeah, the signal is actually pretty good. I've had my phone in the other room, and it still plays music, even nice. for as small as these are. Uh, I just looked them up on Best Buy. They're two ninety nine. Okay. That's, uh, I don't remember what I backed them on Kickstarter for. but um, So the I guess the major flaw in them is that the firmware cannot be updated. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know why they would engineer a product like that in 2015 and make it so that you can't update the firmware, especially something this complicated that needs that's going to need revisions. Yeah. So the, it sucks as it is, and that's it. You can't like expect an update that's going to fix it. And because of the way that it has to synchronize audio between both uh, ears, mm -hmm. it's extremely sensitive to any delays in between that synchronization. So what will happen is if you're listening to uh, if you have both of them in, in both ears and you're listening to music that has like vocals in it, where you would normally hear the vocals like in the middle of both ears, it, they will get ever so slightly out of sync and you'll hear that voice start to wander to, to like one ear. Right. And then wander back into the middle and then maybe wander to the other ear. And it's, it's kind of creepy because, uh, when you're listening to like a podcast, it sounds like the person, is talking, but then walking around you. Oh, nice. It's very weird. Um, and then a lot of people have been complaining about on the Kickstarter page that they, like the one ear will uh, momentarily drop out while the left ear is still playing. Mm -hmm. um, I've run into that a few times. And then I've also run into an issue where it's like the firmware just crashes on them. So you get no audio at the Bluetooth, like on your phone, it can't even see the devices anymore. You have to put them back in the little charger thing and basically reboot them. Hmm. That's kind of my review of the uh, ear and Bluetooth earbud headphones. I would say stay away from them until version two is out. Now, I know you said they weren't really like meant to be an audiophile stream, but so you said two ninety nine, and I picked up a pair of, um, uh, I guess they're not quite in-ear monitors, but a lower end um I think they're like sure something 215 and uh I think they're about 100 bucks for a pair mm. of them and they sound really good. Obviously they have a wire on them. Right. But the sound is, you know, quite quite good compared to normal earbuds. Yeah. So I would I would kind of wonder if they're going to start to compete with, you know, some at least mediocre audiophile kind of earbuds at that point. Yeah, I mean my normal uh wired Earbuds are Westone 4Rs, so they have four drivers in them. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty good for listening to music and stuff. Going into these, I, I knew that they weren't going to be uh, extremely high quality. 
Mm-hmm. But I have to say that when they do work, the audio quality on them for uh, music is uh, very good. I think a lot of people would be more than happy with them as far as the sound quality. Yeah, cool. So you have some PGP stuff? Yeah, and and what this is, um, someone was asking about, um, Ed Barrett actually was asking about um, some alternatives to PGP and GPG. And this is something I'm kind of interested in and perhaps a little bit passionate about. And I think that the reason people are looking for alternatives to PGP are that um, it's really hard to make use of and um, and really hard to get going and know if you've got something useful or not. And uh, I started to look for alternatives myself. And one of the things that I kind of found was um, OpenBSD has Signify. And I thought, well, if I want to sign a message so that someone knows that I actually sent it, that would solve most of my problems. You know, you see these companies getting owned because people are sending emails that impersonate another person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, everybody acts on it accordingly when, you know, it causes big problems because it wasn't initiated from, you know, someone who worked within the company. And so signing emails solves a huge risk for companies. And um, I, I said, well, let's start with Signify and see where that gets me. And in doing that, I kind of um, landed on something that Ted Unangst did, um, Reop. And Reop is basically uh, an application that is supposed to give you a reasonable expectation of privacy. And it does things like um, signing email. You can use public key encryption to encrypt email correspondence back and forth. Uh, Email, I shouldn't be jumping that far ahead, but there are um, public key mechanisms. So you can sign files or messages and encrypt uh, files and messages back and forth. And then there's also like a pre-shared secret kind of mechanism. So if you don't want to walk someone through um, the whole process of go ahead and generate this key, send Mm -hmm. it to me, I'll, you know, sign and encrypt this file and then send it back to you or whatever, you can encrypt a file using some long password or whatever, and then send them that message and if they can install reop and you give them this uh, pre-shared secret, they can decrypt that message. Now, um, I don't know that it's necessarily a full alternative to PGP. And one of the biggest things that I, I want to see accomplished from anything that would be an alternative is I want to see it used easily in an email client. Mm-hmm. And um, I realize that not too many people use MUT regularly as their email client. And um, that's kind of where I started. And I was trying to just shim in Reop to a normal message. And I was able to do that. I was able to compose an email message and tell Reop, grab the body of this message and sign it. Or sign and encrypt this message. Was that what the regular MUT uh, PGP integration is like all the MUT configuration options where you say what the command line option is to run PGP? Well, I, I didn't make it that far. Um, I have I have started to work on shimming reop into those GPG commands. Okay. Um, but this was simply me pulling up my editor 
and uh, basically piping the message to Reop and then getting the result from that and putting it back into the message. Okay. And um, I was using Vim at the time, so there's a there's a few commands or um, like what is it? It's like colon period comma dollar sign, and then you do some stuff. And and obviously this is not an elegant solution, but I could send an email, sign in encrypted, and the other end could um, verify the signature and decrypt the message. So I mm-hmm. felt like I had a start. Um, but really, I think. Um, there needs to be a little bit more. Um, the, the most of the issue in my eyes is the user experience side. I think we need to think about how users are doing this, and um, if I can get going what I want to get going, I will provide another option in MUT as my starting point that basically says, um, you know, when you compose the email message, you can have some macro that says sign and encrypt this message. And it will look at your email address and look at the uh, recipient's address. And then I think there's some function in Reop where it can go in there and grab those um, keys on your keychain. It's not a keychain really, but it can look at the keys that you have in a particular key file and it can sign and encrypt or encrypt or whatever you ask it to do and then send it along its merry way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of problems and a lot of things to work through before that's useful, um, you know, because there's all this, um, there's a standard like ASN1 says, well, how do we, you know, go through and parse this message and encode this and decode that and all that kind of stuff so that you can, you know, do the cryptography um, in a sane fashion on each end. Um, and so really you can uh, do this on simple email messages now, but Anyway, I'm kind of digressing. I want the I want the client experience, like the email client experience, to be easy enough to use that, um, you know, it says, you know, you you need to set up a key, and it it would be a, like another dependency um, where when you have uh, MUT, you can say, oh, this is the reop flavor or something like that, and it will let you create your keys or import your keys or you tell it where those keys are in a configuration file, and then it just kind of works from there. Um, obviously, that's a bit of work still. Um, and and I guess, you know, Ted would tell you he kind of just did this in a weekend because people were asking about it, and, and now I'm running my mouth, and more people start using it, and he's going to get more grumpy at me. But <laughs> I, I, I like that um, the crypto in it is sound. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things I, I really trust about it. I, I, I can read this code. I can read the reop code and understand mostly what's going on. And it um, it uses libsodium, which I find much more uh, trustworthy and usable than all the other kind of like RSA stuff that we have built into PGP and uh, GPG. So it has all the pieces, um, and they're just they just need to be put together. And I think you know perhaps i can get there perhaps other people will help out um but i i think if i look at the components there's enough there where i can kind of see a, a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to a pgp alternative and just so you guys know i've actually sent emails encrypted and signed uh using reop and people have replied back and it and it does work so it's it's really the the last mile that has prevented PGP and GPG from being, you know, a smashing success. 
that prevents Reop from being, you know, really widely used. And that's the user experience. It has to be easier. Yeah. I just looked on the, uh, the MIT PGP key servers and my first PGP key that I ever submitted was in 1998. And so I've been able to use PGP. I have had a key, at least one key since 1998. And I think in all that time I've received like two PGP encrypted emails Mm-hmm. And neither of them were security sensitive. It was just like somebody testing something out. Right. So I don't know if, if it's even a usability issue anymore or if it's just that people don't see the point. On, you know, Windows, they have um, like the actual the PGP company now. They make like plugins that work with Outlook and everything. Mm-hmm. And it makes it like super easy. You just click a few buttons, it generates a key for you, it submits it to a key server. Um, and then you can, you know, click, you can encrypt and sign verify emails in Outlook with like a click of a button. Yep. And I don't really, I've never seen a company use any of it. So I don't know what it would take to convince all those people that they should start doing that. Yeah. I, I know that, um, I'm hoping that maybe someone, I don't, I, I don't know that it's myself, but I, I'm hoping that someone can pioneer the, implementation piece of it because I think um, it's more and more important to be able to sign um, messages. You know, I just, uh, companies don't really recognize the importance of it, but we're starting to see attacks in the wild now and we're starting to see people exploited because of something that could have been easily prevented. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe that will drive it, um, but I, I guess until people recognize the need having the tools available in Outlook or Mutt or Inbox or anything just won't really matter too much, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's about all I had for um, for Reop and Signify. There's actually um, a little post I did. Uh, it was a survey that I did on Google Plus where I demonstrate the commands that I um, that are required to use Signify, and they transfer over pretty well to Reop. Um, and maybe I'll do a follow-up to that. If you're interested in, in taking a look at that, um, we'll post a link so you guys can check that out. But that's really uh, where that stands. Um, I think the tools are maybe about 30% where they need to be, and there's a lot of other integration pieces and in, uh, in loose ends that need to be tied up before we have sound alternatives. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, you were going to talk about um, a new driver that you're working on in uh, OpenBSD? Yeah, so the uh, trackpad on my new Samsung laptop does not uh, attach over USB or the old um, like PS2 internal kind of interface. Mm-hmm. It uses uh, HID over I2C, which um, I think the same kind of interface is used for the one of the Chromebooks, the C720, something like that. Yep. But the trackpad on this one, there's no like probing for it like the configuration as far as the um, the like IRQ and the uh, address and stuff, it's all stored in ACPI. So you need to, so I guess I need to write a driver that probes ACPI, pulls all that data or that configuration data out, and then uses that to try and talk to the device and then find it, find the version, all that stuff, and then start implementing like the packet parsing and stuff to actually turn that into a mouse driver. 
And the ACPI stuff reminded me a lot of the um, flat device tree that you have to do with ARM. Yeah. Where you don't, you can't just like probe a PCI bus and find out what's attached to it. You have to have like a configuration, a central configuration somewhere that says what devices are present. Mm-hmm. And so this seems to be like where even x86 machines are headed, where there's a ton of uh, configuration just stuck in ACPI. Now, ACPI uses tables, correct? Yeah, so they're like binary compiled tables, and then they're stored in, uh, they're basically like pulled out of memory and then parsed. Some people might not know, OpenBSD is, uh, between OpenBSD and Windows, we are like the only two operating systems that have our own ACPI implementation. Uh, basically, every other operating system uses Intel's uh, ACPI CA, which is like their uh, reference implementation, so Linux and FreeBSD and everything. So that's kind of odd that we have our own implementation, so we have to like basically implement everything ourselves, but then we don't have all that giant uh, mess of Intel code in our kernel. Yeah, so this new stuff uses um, ACPI version 5. This is like all the new stuff that was in the version 5 spec as far as um, defining like serial buses and I2C devices. So our ACPI implementation uh, did not target version 5, so this is something that I'm having to add. Okay. Yeah, this driver is pretty complicated. Um, It basically has to pull in uh, ACPI, uh, I2C and then create a hid driver and then turn that into like a mouse uh, driver basically to work with the existing stuff in OpenBSD and uh, X11. Which I'm assuming the more um, I2C devices that we have hanging off of there, the more complex it gets, right? Yeah. I mean, hopefully this once this ACPI stuff is implemented in sort of a way that's generic, um, it will just kind of work in the future for new devices, and it'll just be able to parse that ACPI um, that are stored in, like, firmware, and then the operating system pulls those out and parses them to figure out, like, how to control stuff on the machine. Okay. So um, hopefully once we basically support all of this stuff... Um, these new kind of device definitions in our um, AML parser and in our ACPI stack, yeah, <clears throat> it'll just kind of work. Yeah. And I and you know you were talking earlier about um, you know how we have our own implementation. Actually, I think our stuff works rather well. Mm-hmm. I I remember early on, you know, thinking, you know, remember when um, it, things first started, we were like, ah, you know, is this going to work? Is that going to work? But now we don't even have to think about it. I think things just work well. Um, even some of th- some things I think work better in OpenBSD than they do in Windows, but I don't know if that is related or not. Yeah, it's kind of weird for, I mean, every other operating system runs the same ACPI stack. So it's like, it's not even really a reference uh, implementation anymore. It's just the de facto standard implementation. Mm-hmm. So vendors don't even have to really write ACPI that conforms to the spec. They just have to write it so that uh, Intel's code works because um, they really have nothing else to even test it against. If it works on against uh, Intel and against Windows, then that's fine. Yeah. But I guess those are Windows and Linux are the only two uh, operating systems that run this stuff anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's kind of what open source is becoming, isn't it? We open source by supporting Linux, and it's GPL, and the source code is GPL, therefore it's open source. And Yeah, it's been that way forever. It's like uh, all the world is a Linux machine running i386. Yep. I mean, nobody even notices that there's other operating systems or there's other architectures. Now that I guess ARM stuff is becoming more popular, it's becoming a thing. Yeah. And and I want to challenge Google because uh, not that Google's listening to this, but I, I, <laughs> I wish that they would. I wish that they would do a better job of um, kind of cultivating some of these other open source projects. And you know, we have issues with Chrome, and um, you know, they're like, take our code and use it, and we want to see you use this browser. And they, you know, do their data analytics and their harvesting and that kind of stuff. And we run it on OpenBSD, but you know, they close tickets and say. OpenBSD is not supported, but mm-hmm. there's huge chunks of code in there that are specific to OpenBSD. And um, I, I kind of wish that there was a little bit better avenue for the integration piece between, you know, Chrome saying, well, if you want to use this, by all means use this. And we have code in here, we upstream code to them, but then they're like, no, 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 we can't do this because it's not supported. Well, there's there's a ton of problems with this. You know, if we try and upstream fixes for you you're benefiting from us using it mm-hmm. we're finding things we're finding bugs in your code because openbsd uh, tickles them so they benefit from it and then so they might have some bug fixes and then they might have some uh, openbsd kind of specific things that you know we don't want to apply giant diffs for but then when we run into other issues and we you know, open bug trackers with them and they say, well, OpenBSD isn't supported, FreeBSD isn't supported, whatever, we won't fix this. That, I mean, that kind of seems a little bit like a one-way street and it seems a little bit unfair and I understand, like, if I was running a project, it, it's it's hard to support that, but you're getting benefit from it and you're um, entertaining half of the request and it, I, I would really love to see you know, Google do the right thing. I, I want to see them invest a little bit more. I mean, I, I know that they don't have unlimited resources and I don't whatever, but they have more resor- resources than the OpenBSD project does mm-hmm. and certainly more than the people who are, you know, porting Chrome um, into the project. And I, I think that it would go well with them to set a standard and set a mark and say, look, here's here's some contribution, here's some help, here's some work and, uh, and meet us a little bit closer to halfway in some of these things. Yeah. It's weird when, uh, open B- or Google will use OpenBSD's libc for Android and Apple will use open SSH and PF and everything, but there's kind of nothing coming back the other way. Yep. And, and I understand that that's kind of how the open source culture works and Google does make really nice financial contributions to the OpenBSD Foundation, and that's awesome. But I think um, if we want to keep having open source be what it is, if we have to go back to what it started as and look at how licenses looked 40 years ago and understand why that license is useful and powerful and important and then kind of understand where our differences lie with how things are happening now. And I realize that, you know, GPL3 is 
somewhat good for people um, who are manufacturing products so that they get, you know, code back. But at the same time, I think there's um, prohibitive things happening because of that license as well. Extremely prohibitive things happening as well. So I, I want to see the open source ecosystem um, be more than just Linux. I want to see it be more than just, um, you know, we run on an open platform. And, and truth be told, you know, you talked about libc and pf and those types of things. But there's a lot more stuff that people get from OpenBSD mm -hmm. and a lot more things that they could benefit from. I was talking to the uh, Chrome OS team and they were talking about some sandboxing tool that Chrome uses. And one of the guys who works at Google said, well, actually, OpenBSD has something that is a little bit more feature complete than our sandboxing tool. And I didn't get the details on it, but it was kind of interesting to know that they're, you know, they're re-implementing um, some of the ideas and the technologies that we've already done. And I, I, I just wonder if the whole open source ecosystem could work a little bit better because Chrome OS is sort of open source. Um, and sort of. <laughs> it, Yeah, sort of. And so it could benefit from some of that stuff, you know, and, and I would mm -hmm. like to see, you know, the ecosystem recognized in areas where it doesn't get recognition even though it's being used and it's a strong healthy part of the ecosystem so yeah you know it's i guess it, it's weird how uh not that long ago people were like linux is a thing like there are other operating systems besides windows mm -hmm. and then linux kind of took over and you know a lot of it was because of android and um you can buy laptops that just come with linux on them and uh, Chromebooks and all that other stuff. And so now you have all these companies kind of con contributing directly to Linux uh, by way of hardware drivers and stuff like that. Um, but projects like OpenBSD still have to kind of fight and say, no, there's, there's, other, there's things other than Linux too. Yep. And maybe we're in the same position Linux was 12 years ago. Yeah. And maybe we'll start to be recognized and used and all that kind of stuff, just like Linux was 12 years ago. Maybe 2016 will be the year of the uh, OpenBSD desktop, <laughs> but I doubt it. Yeah. Well, speaking of OpenBSD desktops, um, that's a good segue into um, high-resolution displays. Um, I, I was talking with, um, with you a couple episodes ago, and we were kind of hinting that we're using um, like 4K monitors um, with OpenBSD. And we've had some people ask about that. Now, um, I guess I'll give you a little um, background here. I'm not using um, a, uh, like a desktop. I'm using a window manager. And I'm also not really uh, making use of everything I should be for running a high-resolution display in OpenBSD. So I'll just give you an idea of what I'm doing and then uh, if you could talk a little bit more about the finer points of it. Most of what I do, um, I've got a Dell monitor. It's got very nice pixel density. It's a 4K monitor, and I'm plugging it into DisplayPort, and I, um, I have that working on both my X220, and I also have it working on my um, Intel, um, um, just like tower. It's my, my desktop. And um, there's a couple weird things that happen with DisplayPort. So um, my, har my hardware is new enough that D 
DisplayPort works, but um, there's glitches, and it's not so new that it completely doesn't work. I don't know if that makes any sense, but there's some new Bay Trail stuff and mm-hmm. uh, coming out that we're still kind of getting support for. And what happens is when I reboot my machine, DisplayPort works, but as soon as I um, stop X um, or my mo- monitor goes off, my monitor does not show back up to the DisplayPort, and I get no video signal. Uh, yeah. So is that that's Broadwell or? You know what? I'm drawing a blank. I think it is Broadwell. Okay. My laptop is Broadwell too, and it also has some kind of some graphical issues. Mark Tennis did a commit the other day that disabled some of the acceleration in the Xorg driver for um, newer Broadwell stuff because mm-hmm. there's still some bugs because the um, all of that uh, DRM and KMS code comes from Linux. So we just need to um, sync to a newer version of Linux to get more of that code because at the time that Mark did that sync, the Broadwell code that was in Linux wasn't that mature, but they've since improved it. So hopefully that will, uh, a newer, uh, more recent sync will uh, fix some of the issues that you're having. Yeah, hopefully. So... Um, aside from the DisplayPort stuff that I experience, um, what I run is um, I've been running uh, Spectrum uh, as my window manager, and before that I was using Fluxbox. I guess that's where I have all my configuration. And what I do basically is I run terminals and I run Chrome. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of cheating here. This is not like everything is not going to work with this. But in my terminals, um, I increase the font size, and that seems to work for reading code but of course the borders and stuff are very small still but generally that's you know kind of a feature anyway and in chrome i increase the i just do the zoom you know the uh, control plus and make everything bigger and that seems to work for me okay Uh, and and i guess that's a real simple setup but if you were doing something like chat or gimp or something like that you have to play with other settings too right yeah what you probably want to do is use uh, XRANDR and mm-hmm. do the dash dash DPI and set the actual DPI of your screen. And that kind of sets the baseline that a lot of X, newer X stuff at least will use to figure out how big or small your display is. Okay. So like the default, if you don't set anything, is like uh, 96. So if you're using a like a high DPI monitor, everything will be really tiny. There's like a there's websites where you can put in like the actual dimensions of your screen and the resolution and then it'll give you the actual DPI that you need to use. So then you take that DPI that it gives you and then basically just throw it away because it doesn't mean anything. Because right. if you use that with uh, XRandar or whatever, um, it like is never accurate. So you basically just have to keep playing with it and change that DPI level to something that um, looks decent on your screen. Because like. I use the actual DPI of my screen on the laptop and it came out to like 247 DPI. Okay. And when I set that, um, like the font sizes are still really weird. So to get like a decent looking font with 247 DPI, I needed to set my font size at like six or seven, which is way too small for my display. Mm-hmm. So I played with it a bit, and now it's it's all the way down to 120, which um, gives me a, a normal font size. Okay. And is there anything specific about uh, 
you know, the, the ratio, I mean, you're talking about mm, the DPI, so there's got to be some sort of like ratio height and width and that kind of thing. Is that, does that play into it? Uh, not really. It's just to give you the, um, based on your resolution and the size and width to calculate what your DPI is. Okay. Um, but it's just a starting point. So play around with it and see what you get. And then, um, like if you open up an X term and you have, uh, are you using like true type fonts or are you using the like built in old pixel ones? I'm using uh, Adobe Source Code Pro. So it is a true type font and it's uh, mono spaced. Okay. You just basically want us to play around with the DPI until the font size that you have looks, um, like what you would expect it to look on a non-high DPI monitor. So like when I used the 247 DPI, I had to set my font size to like 6 or 7, and now I am using a font size of 11, and it's like a decent-sized font. Yeah. Uh, and then once you do that, you still have to like uh, adjust the border sizes and stuff for your window manager because at least I use Rat Poison, and it, had, it didn't do anything with the DPI. So I basically... Um, had to like double the border widths. Yeah, so when you have like a a tiling window manager, you can specify the border width around all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that at least in Rat Poison, it's not affected by DPI too much. Right. Um, so I basically just went in because the the screen that I have is it's twenty five sixty by sixteen hundred pixels. Okay. And if you half that, it's 1280 by 800, which is a decent size resolution for a non-high DPI 12-inch screen. So I'm basically running with everything um, as if it's doubled. So like I had like a four-pixel width border on my uh, windows, so I just made it eight. Yep. And then, like you were saying in Chrome, um, I use Firefox. So if you just go into the About Config and you set layout.css.dpi, to um on mine i use two and it basically just treats the screen as double um the resolution ah very cool i'm gonna have to look at that that's uh that's useful yeah because um and then you can use you know the normal zoom size and um all that stuff and it will calculate font sizes and image sizes appropriately Mm -hmm. and then that also tells it um to fetch like the high DPI versions of images for websites that are configured that way. Nice. Once you do that, you'll start to notice all the websites that haven't done that and every all the like images will start to look blurry. <laughs> so that bothered me enough that uh on my like my own websites that I was able to control, I implemented the CSS stuff to basically fetch um images at twice the resolution and um it's a lot easier to do in HTML now than it used to be. With uh, you don't even need CSS really. If you have like an image tag, you just do like image source equals um, whatever dot PNG, and then in that tag you'd also do uh, um, SRC SET, so it's source set, and then you bas- it's you tell it which uh, image like what file names to use based on the resolution, and then the browser figures out on its own which image to fetch. Nice. So you don't have to do any like JavaScript or weird CSS to like try and calculate that on your own. You just leave it up to the browser and it works great in Firefox and uh, iPhone, like iPhone, uh, like high resolution displays and stuff. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so I guess kind of in summary, when when we talk about these high resolution displays, um, 
it, it sounds a little bit like there's room to grow, and I and I agree with that. But I will say um, the other high resolution uh, stuff I've seen really leaves a lot to be desired. Even um, some of the Apple stuff, it looked like they needed to work on some stuff. Yeah, I mean, on uh, Mac OS and Windows, you still, if you try a high DPI display, some stuff works fine and some stuff still looks blurry because it has to be upsized. Yeah. Um, I mean, on OpenBSD, so I have all my terminals set right and my window borders and all that stuff, and Firefox looks okay. But like GIMP um, it still has really tiny icons because they don't scale up. Yeah. So that's a problem. I tried using Audacity to edit this podcast on my OpenBSD laptop, and Audacity is still really tiny. I'm not even sure what toolkit it uses, but um, apparently in like GTK3, the high DPI support should be a lot better. Yeah, very nice. Well, good. Um, I guess that's pretty much all we were going to talk about tonight. Is there anything else you wanted to go over? Uh, yes, I would like to complain about how awful SE Linux is. <laughs> Um, I had to use this, uh, a customer set up a new server and it was running sent OS, which I guess enables SE Linux by default. So it's a brand new machine, new CentOS install. I had to set up, um, Nginx and PHP FPM to mm-hmm. run an application. So I'm like going into the config. I'm like setting where I want the files set up. I'm adjusting the logs and stuff. And I, I like start up Nginx manually and it works and things are okay. And then, so CentOS uses systemd, which is a whole other rant. <laughs> so, you know, you have to do like system CTL enable nginx to like make it a service. Okay. So then I did system CTL start nginx and it won't start. So I'm like, well, what the hell? It was just running fine when I ran it from the command line. What's the deal? So you have to run like system CTL status nginx and then it shows like the output of the log or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like it, it kept getting permission denied errors when it would try to open log files. And I'm like, what the hell? It's running as root. How could it get permission denied errors? So I'm like, well, okay, maybe it's trying to not run as root somehow. Like, I don't know what the hell is going on. So after like an hour of f***ing around with the setup for Nginx and PHP, F- uh, PHP FPM, it turns out that SE Linux was doing all this in the background where it was intercepting all these calls to like open log files and open the um, fast CGI socket and then making them not work because it violated whatever policy was installed by default, which I had no idea was even there. So so it, it, it enables um, SE Linux with a default policy. Now, does it have a default policy you can use for Nginx? So apparently there was... There's a default policy for both of those, and they dictate where you can write like log files to. So if you change those log files from any of the defaults, you have yeah. to update the policy. And I didn't know that because I didn't even know the thing was uh, in use. But the the other thing is like with on OpenBSD with um, Pledge, if you violate the Pledge policy, it kills the program. Right. So it dies, and then it's obvi- it's really obvious that something bad is happening. And it tells you. Right. So, yeah. So, and then you can't like just look at a, like a log file. You have to run like journal something dash X something else um, to like, you know, see all this information. And so it's spitting out these like logs saying like, oh, it violated this policy. Um, I think you want to do this because I have like a 97% 
assumption that you want to modify this policy to do this. So just copy and paste this command. It's literally logging that in the log file. It's like giving you commands to copy and paste because most users like me, I guess, have no idea what the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so if you <laughs> if you have that high of an assurance that this is what the user wants to do, like, why don't you just have some easier way to do this than to have to copy and paste all this bullshit? Yeah. So eventually what I ended up doing, which I'm sure a lot of other users do, is you just disable SE Linux because it was so frustrating and wasting a lot of my time that the customer is paying for, and I couldn't get it to work the way that I needed to. Yeah, so I just ended up having to disable SE Linux, which, like, you edit a config file and say that it's uh, disabled, and then you reboot the machine, and, of course, everything worked after that. Hmm. So I had to, like, tell the customer, like, look, this is wasting a lot of my time and your money, so if you want SE Linux on there and you want it all locked down, then you can write all these bull profiles and settings and stuff and do all that after it's all configured because uh, trying to set all this stuff up while it's enabled is impossible. Yeah, and and kind of silly, I think, too. Yeah, and I, just, I don't understand that mentality that it's like, oh, you violated this policy. I'm just going to like log it somewhere. No big deal. And right. I'm going to let the program keep running. And and the program doesn't output anything like, um, you know, oh, I had a failure of something. This is weird. It's just like uh, it goes on its merry way. And you have no idea that you're, the thing you're trying to configure is not working properly. Yeah. Oh, um, I have one thing I'd kind of like to throw out there. Um, I talked a little bit in the last episode about the APU2 that I got. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually had a chance to to use it a bit, and um, um, I, I'm really impressed. Um, this is a completely unsupported thing, so don't uh, don't jump into any great conclusions here. But um, I used Flash ROM and OpenBSD to flash the firmware with an updated version, so I could boot off of my uh, MSATA drive, and uh, it worked. And wow. there was there was a I was really impressed. I think they have the um, flashing tool sitting off of like an I2C bus. Okay. And um, uh, FlashROM is able to detect that. The only thing that you have to do in OpenBSD is you have to set the secure level down to, you know, minus one. Yeah, I was going to say, I hope you have to do something so that you're prevented from doing that by default. Exactly. And, And I think that that's fantastic, you know, because it's a mechanism where when you need to do something serious, you do it one time and you set the the machine to, to be in kind of a vulnerable state. You can take it offline, you can do whatever, and flash the BIOS. And and I think that's kind of a testament that even if the capability is there, you have to go through some pretty, you know, not great lengths, but you have to do some measures to be able to flash the BIOS from the operating system while it's running. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it, it did. It, it flashed the new BIOS on there um, using their flash tool. So they did a great job um, exposing uh, whatever device that they used to flash the BIOS um, to flash ROM. That worked fantastic. And um, the machine is sitting on my desk and it's, um, you know, serving up some Go applications and all that kind of fun stuff. And I may have unofficially tried um, to look at um, if it supports VMM and I there may be unofficial um, CPUs that say that they're supported. So... Anyway, I, I was kind of excited to see that kind of thing. Uh, but I, I really have been impressed with that whole experience. And the hardware itself seems very responsive and very usable. 
um, sometimes you buy these little devices and they just don't cut it. And uh, this one feels very, very uh, responsive and very good. So I'm excited. Cool. So does it uh, write the BIOS through like a dev I2C device or like how is it actually talking to that device? I think it uses like dev mem or something oh, like that. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this is why it's a not supported option. You have to install a patched version of PCI utils. Um, and so once you do that, then you build flash ROM and flash ROM talks to this patched version of PCI utils that had some kind of scary, questionable diff in it. And then of, of course, you know, you're restarting into secure le- level minus one and all that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, it, 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 it's doable though. I guess that's kind of my point. Uh, right. So that's cool. You should uh, send me a ACPI dump of that machine. Cause I wonder if any of the I2C stuff is uh, in ACPI, like, what I'm dealing with right now. Yeah, I don't know. I can uh, I can definitely take a look. Well, I guess that's all we had for uh, this week. Yeah, um, I appreciate everyone listening. We've had great feedback from all of you. Um, if there's anything you guys want to hear us talk about, um, if you have any comments or criticisms, please let us know, and uh, we'd be more than happy to um, talk about any kind of software or hardware or whatever you'd like to hear about, and we're looking forward to... Um, to talking to you next week. Yeah, I uh, I like complaining about things. So if you guys have any uh, topics for me to complain about, uh, I'm all for it. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at Garbage FM. Uh, subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us in uh, iTunes or your podcast app. Uh, Brandon, where can people stalk you on the internet? Yep, I'm on Twitter still at No Mercy Mod with a K N O W. I'm on the web at jcs.org or on Twitter at jcs. Just a real quick shout out. Um, I would like to personally thank Miode for um, contributing to the OpenBSD project for the past 15 years. He's um, been a great guy to talk to and um, done some great work for the project. And I think uh, earlier this week he he said thanks for our, um, 15 years of you know great collaboration and it was time to part ways. So I just want to give you a shout out, Miode. Thank you so much.